So according to Luke, when Jesus preaches his first sermon to his home congregation in Nazareth, he claims the words of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, someone might say that's Jesus' personal mission statement. I mean, vision, purpose, program, it's all laid out. Now, according to Luke, in Luke's second volume, Paul and Silas carry that plan forward to proclaim release to the captives, to let the oppressed go free. The connection with Isaiah's words, Jesus' announcement, it seems pretty clear. Paul and Silas end up in prison on a trumped-up charge. An earthquake shakes the shackles off their limbs and the doors off their hinges, so this is a story about freedom. But not just for Paul and Silas, but in this story, they don't run. Nobody gets out. The next day, the magistrates say Paul and Silas can go, but as citizens, they have the right to due process, and they won't go until officials come and physically remove them from jail, admitting the injustice. So this story isn't just about chains and bars and stone walls. There are two other jailbreak stories in the book of Acts that cover that. This story is about, well, it's about many kinds of captivity, oppression, bondage, right from the beginning. First, there's that slave girl. Now, she has what many people would call a gift, the gift. Today, she'd have a TV show and a YouTube channel. She'd be making a lot of money, at least for her producers. She'd probably be on right after the Long Island Medium on one of those cable channels that few of us would admit that we actually watch from time to time. She'd be making money, or her producers would be making money. And this girl has owners who are exploiting her talent. And they have lots of customers. Paul and Silas aren't fooled. They wouldn't say she was gifted. They'd say she was cursed, possessed. But how do they know that for sure? Well, here's the clue. Here's the New Testament clue in the Gospels and Acts. We know that there's a genuine demon because the demon always, always knows which God and what power is at work. The demons recognize the good even when we won't, as far as the Gospels and Acts are concerned. And so this spirit says Paul and Silas are slaves, slaves of the Most High God, and they are, because they're bound to serve God and proclaim the way of salvation. Now, Paul is annoyed. That happens a lot. And I don't know why he waits so long, but finally he, he turns and sends that spirit packing. 
he sets the girl free. She's been released. She's free from spiritual captivity, spiritual oppression. But she's still a slave. She's still a captive in a system that she's powerless to change. Economic and political oppression, they will go on. And we'll come back to that. And then her owners appear. They're her personal oppressors, the agents of the system, and they're caught in it themselves, but that doesn't excuse them as they work the system to put Paul and Silas behind bars. And what are their charges? This is what they say. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. That is debatable on every point. And Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. They're entitled to a defense. But the magistrates don't ask a question. They give in to the crowd. They take the easy route. After all, in the empire, if trouble goes up to Rome, more trouble comes down. Do you hear any echoes of Jesus' trial before Pilate? From one good deed one small change to a riot all in an afternoon. Oppression always feeds escalation. Violence is the natural response to any real or imagined threat. So into the cells Paul and Silas go. But by nightfall they have the strength to pray out loud and sing hymns of praise. And the other prisoners hear them loud and clear. And then there's an earthquake. A force more powerful, stronger than any chains or stocks, a power greater than even imperial Rome sets to work. And when the jailer wakes up in the morning, he sees those open doors. He sees the prisoners sitting there with their feet out of the stocks and with their chains on the ground by their sides. Well, the jailer knows what to do. He pulls out his sword. He carries all the weight of that prison and everything that goes on in it on his shoulders. And in the Roman Empire, when you know you're cooked, the honorable thing to do is take your own life and spare your superiors the trouble of executing you. But Paul shouts from way downstairs, we're all still here, it's okay. The jailer is overwhelmed. And he believes. He hears the word and he believes. And he gets himself and his whole family baptized. That's how they did it then. The jailer washes their wounds and Paul and Silas help him and his kin get washed free of their sins. Paul and Silas will soon be free to leave town, but the jailer will still be in his place. He'll still be a jailer, a contractor of the Roman Empire. And as Paul and Silas leave town, he probably has to start raising money to repair the jail because he doesn't have earthquake insurance. And God never provides post-miracle cleanup. I can't find that anywhere in the New Testament. 
But the jailer and his family, baptized believers, are still stuck and caught and captive in a system they're powerless to change. But we'll get back to that. Miracles. Believe them or not, in the Gospels it's clear, or, or it should be, that the miracle isn't the point. The miracle points to Jesus, who he is, what his presence in the world means for the world and people in it. And in the Acts, miracles, yes, help people, but they're usually a pretext for a sermon or the opening to witness and conversion. The miracles are there in the book of Acts to show how much God wants this new thing called the church to advance and grow throughout the empire. But every miracle story still has a context. It still has people in the story. People who clearly have lives before and after. And sometimes we get a little of the before story. We rarely see what happens after. Not right after, but after right after. See, every miracle that's told about in the New Testament changes more than the problem, the barrier it's aimed at. Jesus' healing miracles and exorcisms release people from bondage and oppression, but the miracle doesn't end with the spiritual release, the restoration to health. This is important, because in Jesus' day, the best answer people can come up with to the big why questions, why pain, why death, why disaster, the best answer they have to those questions is, somebody did something wrong, most likely you, and God has good reason to be mad at you. So people who need Jesus' help are more than sick. They're stuck, caught, captive to a system that pushes them to the edge and beyond. In Jesus' day, there's a place for everyone, and everyone will stay in his or her place. That's the way it is. That's the way God made it. So people who need Jesus' help, people who need the help of the apostles, of Paul and Silas, are pushed down, held in place in a system that won't let them even hope of health, of moving. But healed and cleansed of evil spirits and even brought back from the dead, the people Jesus and the apostles help in those miracle stories are changed. They are also moved out of the place in the worlds they know. Their health, their freedom, their restored life question everything everyone around them believes about them and what everyone around them believes about the world and the way it should be. There's an analogy, you know, in the experience of many people who are helped by 12-step movements. When they begin to turn their lives around with the help of their higher power and are in recovery, they are usually surrounded by people whose whole lives have been directed to supporting and feeding the addiction of the one they love. And so they often find it's very difficult 
Addicts in recovery find it's often very difficult to build new relationships with the people who are closest to them because they haven't just stopped drinking or using, they have begun a new way of living. And until other factors in their lives around them change also, their recovery is threatened. And so they go out to build new relationships. Similarly, when someone meets Jesus or one of the apostles and the circumstances of their life have made them outcasts because people believe trouble is contagious, and they suddenly discover, through a few words, that God loves them no less or more than anyone else, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they are dealing with in their lives. When they hear those words of love and acceptance, imagine that slave girl discovering, even though Paul sends the spirit away with some anger, discovering, I can be free. This Jesus is for me. Imagine what she feels, maybe for the first time in her life. Yes, she's still a slave. We'll get back to that. The jailer and his family, that earthquake force that first terrifies him, is also the power of love and acceptance and freedom. Yes, he's still a jailer, a contractor in the empire of injustice, but he's so much more than that now. Time after time, the real miracle of transformation comes when a person realizes the truth. God loves me. I can have a new life. I'm worthy of Jesus' attention. I can be loved and love others. As the church grows and spreads out during and after the time of the Acts of the Apostles, that's when oppression on the big scale starts to be lifted. That's when the prisons that keep people away and apart from one another start to open. People are changed and they can't help but change the world around them. Christian faith spreads through the Roman Empire like a positive infection. The church runs afoul of Caesar not not just for what they believe, but how they treat one another and others. Slave and owner, they may not be equals at home, but on Sunday evening when they worship together, when they embrace one another with a kiss of peace, when they break bread from the same loaf and share the cup, well, do you suppose things are the same as they were when those slaves and owners go home? Soldier and citizen, patrician and peasant, Roman and Greek, experience in the church, in the time of the apostles and after, a whole new life, a life with no walls to separate one from another, a life without fear of the other, the foreign, the new. And that contributes to the downfall of oppression and bondage and fear. Some changes 
take years, some generations, some we're still working on. But the gospel, the good news of God's unconditional love and call for justice for each and for all, the gospel changes lives. We offer that good news Sunday after Sunday. It's news we need to hear over and over again. But good news doesn't stop being good news once it's told and believed. People who are set free from bondage to principalities and powers, people who are unshackled from the soul-destroying delusion that life is the race, and the race to acquire and consume and produce and achieve the cycle of build and destroy and build again and destroy again is all there is to life. When we are set free from that, we are not only transformed, but we transform the world around us. Transformed people, people who were once afraid they could never say, but can now say with confidence, God loves me. I can have a new life. I'm worthy of Jesus' attention. I can be loved and I can love others. People who hear and believe the good news can't help working to tear down walls, to redeem captives of all kinds, and work so the oppressed will be free. Amen. Glory to God.